Testing. One, two. Up on my shoe. Three, four. Knock at the door. Five, six. Seven, eight. Nine, ten. Shame on all of you. Special welcome to Rod and Abby Bishop, who are down the back somewhere. There they are. Rod and Abby. Rod, did you want to say anything while you were here this morning? You don't, do you? You can if you like. All returning missionaries, all missionaries who just happened to turn up unannounced, I mean unannounced, (laughs) are invited to take a few minutes to bring a greeting or an update to the church and how they're doing. We have other missionary family with us, Lloyd and Charlotta, and they've been with us now for about 12 months, I think, isn't it? A bit over. But in a few weeks, you're going to uh, South Carolina? When's that? Oh, middle of February now. Okay. We'll have you share with us before you go. That'd be good. G'day, mate. Hi, how are you? Yeah, welcome. Did you have a good Christmas? Yes. Good New Year? Yes. Thanks for coming. That's all right. What's happening for you? What's happening for us? Well, we've been up here for our kind of annual holiday at the Gold Coast, um, where we head back to the motherland, um, <laughs> spend some time, not really in the sun, but... Uh, Good to, be, good to be back home with family, um, and it's always good to drop in here to, uh, to Sunnybank, um, what we call our mother church. Um, it's been eight years now since we headed down to Sydney. Wow. Um, yeah, the, the kids are, are all in primary school next year, um, all three of our kids. So we're kind of entering a, entering a new phase of life where um, Abby particularly will no longer be a full-time mum. Um, and we'll have some, some extra time on her hands. Um, but we are loving the phase of, of life that we're in. Abby has started working with, with us at International Teams um, this year. Um, you've probably heard from her. I'm not sure when she was up here and whether you got her to share. Or, yeah, I think so. Uh, I'm, not really, I'm not really sure. But, but since I've been with up here anyway... With the bike ride. Yeah, with the bike ride stuff, with the ride for refugees. So she's been working two days a week at International Teams. I've continued in my role. My role has kind of expanded. I used to be like the CFO kind of I think is, is what I was calling myself. Now I'm now called Director of Mission Support. So everything we do in the national office to support our missionaries out on the field in terms of finances and database and systems and property um, and looking after our donors and those kind of things, I get to head all that up, which is, for me, that is me in my sweet spot, the way that God has made me and I'm simply loving serving him in that way. Um, you know, some people are wired for spreadsheets and databases and systems, and I'm just like loving doing that for the glory of God. And so we, we're loving where we are as a family. Uh, this last year, we got a chance, Abby and I, to, to head to Europe, um, to the International Teams Europe Conference. And uh, when we did that, we had a chance to visit some of our missionaries on the field um, as well, doing refugee work. So it was a delight for us to kind of get out of the office and see the work that our people are doing and, and meet the the people that they're ministering to. So it's no longer just, you know, emails and spreadsheets and those kind of things, but we've been out there to the, to the real world in one sense and, um, and seen what God's doing. And for us, it was just a wonderful time, two weeks away, and I've just come back. The theme of the whole thing for me was God is at work building his kingdom. 
um, to, to head over there and to, to see the work that we're involved in, um, particularly the refugee stuff that we got to see. It was kind of like just before uh, the refugee crisis hit Australia here or hit our newspapers here in, in early September. It's always been a crisis for a very long time. But we were in Istanbul. We were with Syrian Christians who had fled Syria through Jordan into Istanbul. And one Saturday afternoon, we had Arabic fellowship. Um, it was about three or four families. Uh, we'd cooked a meal for them that afternoon uh, with the, with the uh, international team's team there. And then we had Arabic fellowship. We were singing praises to God in Arabic. It was written out in phonetic Arabic for us. Uh, Australians who can't speak Arabic and we're singing praises to God in Arabic. Um, you think. We think. I trust, I, trust, uh, I trust we were doing that. Obviously, the, God, the word for God in, in Arabic is Allah. So we were singing to Allah, uh, which was interesting just in the way that we think. Uh, yeah. um, but we were singing to the one true God. And it was great to meet a man called Hassam who had come just the week before had fled from Jordan and um, uh, a Muslim man, a background, a Muslim background believer, um, and to hear his story and for me to just see him there singing praises to God and to have heard his story and to just realise that God is so much bigger for me than Castle Hill, so much bigger than Sydney, so much bigger than the English language. Um, and God is at work. And one of the things that he shared as a Syrian man was that in amongst this whole crisis and the whole war that's happening in Syria, he said that the Syrians wouldn't have been open to the gospel if life was just normal and, and, and for them in Syria. But because people have had to flee into Jordan and living in refugee camps in Jordan, they are open to hear about the gospel and there's a great ministry and a great harvest happening there in Jordan for the gospel and for the kingdom because of this war and in amongst this. And so God is at work in ways that we don't even know and we don't even expect um, and so we just get to be a part of this in a, in a little office down in Sydney doing spreadsheets and doing finance reports and those kind of things and we love what God has called us to do and so we're entering this year again Abby's going to be able to put more time and effort into Ride for Refugees we're expanding now into Toowoomba so we've got Ride Sydney, Ride Brisbane, Ride Toowoomba um, looking to raise over $100,000 uh, this year for, for refugee work around the world we got was it just under, over $95,000 um, this year uh, which was brilliant. Um, and so we're loving what we're doing. So thank you for your support and your love and, and uh, your financial giving as a church. We, we're so appreciative of that. So thank you. Give him a nice sunny bank. Welcome. <laughs> Don't answer this now, though you probably will. But I'll ask you later, is Abby's love tank still full? I check with him every time I see that man, and he always tells the same lie. Hmm? <laughs> I'll check with you, Abby. We're going to pray. Father, thank you for Rod and for Abby, for the team of uh, the work of international teams, for the testimony we've heard now that you are the God who is at work in our world. <clears throat> when things go wrong, when things are difficult from our perspective, you're using those difficult times to grow your kingdom just like Paul testified that getting locked up in jail has really actually advanced the work of the gospel so Lord in our life situations and circumstances we pray that you might advance the work of the gospel continue to provide for Rod and for Abby both financially but also spiritually give them wisdom as parents to raise their children to be followers of the Lord Jesus we commit them, Lloyd and Charlotte, and their family and all of our missionary family particularly to you. 
and ourselves, Lord, as fellow missionaries in the journey. Speak to us now through this passage, shape our thinking and our choosing, so that Jesus indeed might be our Lord. We pray in his name. And everybody said? To read to you from the scriptures from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're sort of starting halfway through the chapter. Our focus this morning is going to be on the very last verse, just one verse, verse 21. But I want to read to you from verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth, giving them an explanation of his ministry and also um, motivating and encouraging them to be fellow servants in following Jesus. In this passage, he talks about particularly the ministry of reconciliation that God has uh, implemented and entrusted to us. Verse 14 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. No longer live for themselves. Verse 16, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him. Who, had, who knew or who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God or that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I just want us to focus on this first Sunday in a brand new year on a very simple truth, and it's a very simple truth of the gospel. There are several passages that we could have gone to, but this one sort of encapsulates both the mystery and the simplicity of it. And I'm not sure, and it doesn't matter anyway, that I'm going to say anything this morning that's going to be startlingly new or uh, any particular new insight. There may be for some of you. And if there is, well, give thanks to the Lord. But for many of us, this is going to be a very simple reminder. A reminder of the truths and of the basics that ought to continue to move us and motivate us and remind us about the task that we're about. It's very easy to get distracted at this time of the year. We just have Christmas and we've just had New Year and at Christmas time the focus is about somebody's birthday, Jesus, but it's the only birthday I know of that when everybody comes to celebrate the birthday we give presents to everybody except him. Give it to each other. And of course that's okay. But not if we don't celebrate and focus on him, that we give a gift to him as well, the gift of ourselves, the dedication, commitment of ourselves to him. 
Then there's New Year and there's New Year's resolutions. Who does New Year's resolutions? Put up your hand if you made some New Year's resolutions this year. Two of us. The rest of you are just happy the way you are, just where you're going. Sometimes a waste of time, aren't they? This time of the year can therefore be a time when we get distracted, get off course, that we become focused in here. Families come, families are returning. Our families came together and it was exciting and it was wonderful and messy and noisy and enjoyable. Rhonda's car is now going to have to be taken to a very special cleaner to be fixed up. <coughs> Grandchildren. But they're a delight most of the time. Easy to get distracted from what's really, really important. What's important? That we continue to work with God in transforming people into being passionate followers of Jesus. That we go into the world to make disciples and baptise them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that he has commanded us and taught us. He promises to be with us. The end of this month, 31st of January, we're going to have what we call annually our Focus Sunday. It'll be different this year. Normally we combine, we put the two morning services together and we repeat it at night. This year we're leaving our services at the same times. But we're putting the same services or as incredibly as similar services as we possibly can into all five services. Same song, same reading, same video, same, same, same. Same service with the same theme and the same focus for this year. And just as a heads up, it's going to be on the second part of our mission statement. It's about transforming people. Transformation. This passage, verse 21, this verse is all about transformation. It's all about a God who was at work, who entered into an exchange, who did something which led to significant transformation in people's lives. And God made him, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse talks about three people, three categories of people. There is God. God made him, who knew no sin, Jesus. So there is God, the triune God. There is the Son of God, Jesus, to be, who had no sin, knew no sin, to be sin for us. There is us. God, Jesus, and us. I just want to talk a little bit about each of those before we look at this exchange, this transformation that happens because of this incredible verse which gives us the, the kernel, the, the centre, if you like, the, the foundation of the gospel truth, whichever metaphor you like. God. Some people, perhaps many people, have a very different view of what God is like to the reality of what he is like. I remind you this morning that the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the sovereign Lord, the author of the Bible, the God who is the true and living God, the only true, and he's a triune God, that he is, just three quick things, he is absolutely sovereign, absolutely sovereign, all-powerful. He does exactly as he pleases. He is answerable to no one. 
There is no authority above him. He is the supreme authority. He is absolutely sovereign. He is directed in his choices and actions by his own sovereign will, his own free will. He, of course, will not be unjust. And he, of course, as we have sung this morning, is he will only do good. But he is not controlled by us or by anything else. He is not controlled by our will or our desires or our prayers. He's not subject to fate or to choice or to chance. He does as he wants in heaven and on earth. Through all of creation, he is absolutely sovereign, answerable to none, creates as he chooses. That's the God we're talking about. That's the God of the Bible. Secondly, this absolutely sovereign God is inflexibly just. Always just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't belittle our crimes and call them little faults. Nor does he ignore sin forever. He is not weakly merciful. He demands punishment or penalties for every offence. He is inflexibly just. Our good works don't pacify him. Our praises don't dissuade him. Inflexibly just. He will not pardon the guilty without punishment. He cannot just simply blot out sin and say, there, there, it never happened. Though he is absolutely sovereign, his inflexible justice forbids, prevents him from doing that. He is bound by his own character. And this absolutely sovereign, inflexibly just God is also... I hope this is a word, illimitably, is that a word? It is now. Illimitably gracious. Gracious without limits. He declares, he reveals about himself, I have no pleasure in the death of sinners. I would rather that they turn and live. He is full of grace. He has a plenitude and abundant supply of mercy. As high as the heavens are above the earth, the Bible says, so are his thoughts towards us, his care of us. This is the God before whom we must appear. This is the God to whom we must give an account. This is the God, the sovereign, just, yet gracious one, who makes Christ sin for us in his sovereignty and his justice and out of his mercy finds a way to restore a relationship which was broken. That's God. Second person mentioned is uh, he made him, the Lord Jesus, on our behalf for our sin. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. We've done this over the last month or so, but let's have a bit of a recap and a repeat. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, God is the second person, the member of the triune being, was begotten, not made. He is of one substance with the Father, Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, almighty, infinite. Not infinite to, not subservient to, equal to the Father and the Spirit. One God, triune. And that this divine being 
incarnates, becomes enfleshed through Mary, the son of Mary, becomes a human like us, a man, subject to all the limitations of our human nature, except for sin, tempted but without sin, suffers but without sin, experiences pain and trouble. He is not God humanised, and nor is he a human who is deified. He is both fully God and fully man in one person. Two natures, two what's, one who. Two natures, divine and human, in one person. He had to be fully God. If he wasn't, he had to be fully God in order to die for everybody. If he wasn't fully human, he wouldn't be able to represent us. If he wasn't sinless, he could only die for himself and not for others. And if he was only human and not God, that he could only die for one. He could only be a substitute for one. But because he is divine and therefore infinite and eternal, because he is human, therefore he can stand in the gap and he can represent all of us. He is the only candidate who qualifies. This passage says that this one, the one in the middle, the Son of God, knew no sin. He obviously knew about sin. He knew sin in that sense, knew of it. But he doesn't know it by experience. He's a perfect stranger to sin. It's not in his heart. It's not in his thoughts. It was never in his words. It most definitely was not in any of his deeds. There's no sin in him. From conception or birth, no original sin, no actual sin. God made him who knew no sin. Third group, the us and the our and the we. Well, that's easy to identify, isn't it? That's us. All of us. All without exception. All of us are sinners. From birth. In fact, the Bible says even from conception. We are born with a bias, a sinful nature, which predisposes us towards sin and the actual choice of it in our nature. Not just all of us, but every part of us is affected by sin. Our thinking, our speaking, and our actions, our doing. Daily, hourly, moment by moment, outside of Christ, we are all sinners, in completion. Not as bad as what we possibly could be because of God's common grace and intervention in our world. But none of us are exempt. The old adage is theologically very true, but by the grace of God, there go I. But the worst sinner that you could think of, the worst dictator, the worst criminal, the worst whatever, is tainted with the same sin that we are. That's our condition. That therefore makes sin the most deadly virus, the most deadly disease, the most deadly reality in our existence, in our world. It's because of sin that we die. It's because of sin that we're in a fallen world. It's because of sin that if we die in sin, we 
live without God and if we die in sin, we will go to eternity separated from God and we'll live an eternity of torments in a place called hell. Sin. Now this verse, God, a sovereign, just and yet gracious one, made him the spotless, sinless son of God, Jesus, who had no sin, God in his sovereignty made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is illustrated for us. It just doesn't sound right. It sounds unjust, but it can't be unjust because God is inflexibly just. And out of the infinite counsels of God comes this divine plan of reconciliation. God has illustrated it for us, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was through the sacrificial system. God, taught, God told Adam and taught Adam's descendants, and then particularly the children of Israel, God taught them, if you sin, you will die. The wages of sin is death. Adam, if you eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, of, in the middle of the garden, tree of knowledge of good and evil the day you eat of it you will die God told them it happened now Adam didn't die physically that day but he did die spiritually that day he was separated from God and that's demonstrated for us in the story in Genesis 3 where God escorts them out of the garden places a cherubim there angels with swords turning twisting there's no way back to the tree of life you can't go back. We are separated from God and we can't do anything about it. That's our situation. That's what the scriptures are demonstrating for us. Question. Before Adam and Eve left the garden, what else did God do? Well, I'm reading the white bits, so I'm reading between the lines a little bit. They covered themselves with fig leaves. God covered them with animal skins. That implies God took one of the animals of the garden an innocent animal, killed it. Sin leads to death. And from the skin of the animal covers the guilty ones. That which he did in the Garden of Eden, he repeats through the sacrificial system, so that when we sin, for every offence, there must be a death. Millions of animals died. Innocent animals died. Where a sinner acknowledging their sin and their offence before a holy God would find a sheep or a bull or a whatever and they would place their hands on the head of that animal confessing their sin and in a sense transferring their sin from themselves to this innocent victim that was then taken and executed and removed, separated. Demonstrating the truth which was to come but God establishing the principle and the truth that an innocent victim can act as a substitute for the guilty ones. It's demonstrated in the New Testament. The church is called the Bride of Christ. Imagine a lady who has run up a whole lot of debts. She loves retail therapy and she has maxed out the credit cards and now she's blown it. She's in debt for huge sums. She's single. She finds a very wealthy, interested, husband whom she marries the credit card people the creditors come looking for her to pay her debts 
To which she says what? Well, my husband didn't owe you anything and I owed you everything. I am the one who ran up the debts. I am the guilty one. But now I am married to him. Block your ears for a second. Don't listen to this bit. And now all of my debts are his debts. And he, out of his resources and out of his wealth, will cancel, will pay for my debts. And I, the guilty one, am set free because I am married to him. Church is the bride of Christ. We are married to him. And our debts, our sins, he pays for. God illustrates that through this metaphor of marriage in the New Testament. Well, then, we've spoken about these three people. Now, what are the consequences of this interaction between these three? God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Why? What happens? Well, something happens to him and something happens to us. What happens to him? Well, he, the sinless one, becomes sin. At some point, words fail us of the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. It's not, Jesus did not become a sinner. He never committed sin. Jesus um, did not break God's law. So when the passage says that God made him to be sin on our behalf, it's God's not turning him into a sinner. Don't understand it that way. But rather understand it, the God had Jesus pay the penalty for all of our guilt and for all of our sin. And even that doesn't sound right, does it? That how could God make him pay for them? Well, then you have to realise this, that he, Jesus, is God. It's God making himself pay the penalty. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. It wasn't the Son of God alone, it was the Father and the Spirit with him in it. And Jesus, from the human perspective, has that awful experience where now he, having never committed a sin, is being treated as if he had committed all sin. He does so voluntarily. Jesus stood in harm's way. Jesus stood in the path of divine wrath and the Father crushed him. Inflexibly just. Poured out upon his son. Poured out upon himself in our place. True story told. A father who was not a great father. A judge. A high court. A, a judge. His son had committed several crimes. And the crimes, for whatever they were, resulted not in prison sentences, but in fines, heavy financial fines. And the son was brought before him when he was sitting on the bench. And the press got hold of this and they thought, what is this father, this judge, going to do with his son? Will he go hard? Will he go soft? Will he water it down? And the father in the story goes to the extreme penalty of the law. Whatever penalty was due to him, he gave him the maximum. 
financial fine on whatever number of things it was. Having sentenced to him to that which was crushable for the son because there was no way that he could pay that. The father then stands from his chair behind the bench, takes off the robe, his legal robes, walks around to the clerk of the court, takes out his checkbook and writes out a check for the amount that the son now owes. Debt paid by the judge himself. He returns to the bench, puts his robe back on and sits down and continues through his day. Just like Jesus. He's the judge who came into our world, who paid the penalty for, took the penalty for our sin, paid it in full, and now returns to the bench, returns to heaven, and continues to be the judge. The consequences for him, this came out of an eternal plan. Time has gone, I better hurry. This plan was conceived in the mind of God before anything else, before angels spread their wings, way back before there was time, way back in the midst of eternal darkness. Nothing. The triune God foresees human sin and devises a plan, enters into a covenant between Father, Son and Spirit. The Son will die and pay the penalty for sin. The Father will justify sinners. The Spirit will work to convict and to draw people into a saving relationship to them. Father, Son and Spirit working together that we might experience reconciliation. Well, the Son, what else happened to him? Well, he died. He faced that uh, forsakenness of God. He dies, descends to Hades, unblessed, uncomforted, not honoured, not acknowledged, condemned, executed, expelled. And in three days, he will be the only person, the only one through all of eternity who has paid the full penalty of the wrath of God, eternal wrath absorbed in him. Now everybody else who rejects, refuses, ignores this offer of reconciliation, this offer of forgiveness, and chooses to take their own punishment, will never be able to do what he did, to absorb all of the wrath of God for eternity, that will take them all of eternity, unending eternity, in torment. What are the consequences for us? Well, we have been reconciled. If we have responded to this incredible gift, this offer of the gospel through the person of Jesus, we have been not only now reconciled, and now there is no condemnation for us in him. We are the children of God. We have been justified, we have been adopted, we have been sanctified, and we will be glorified. It would be nice to expand all of those things. This passage also says that we have been given a job. We are now ambassadors of God. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is the message. Our job is to declare it, not to implement it. That's his job. Our job is to be faithful in sharing it, living consistently, in, in order that we might be the righteousness of God, not just right standing, but right character, the character of Jesus. Children of God who are now the ambassadors of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, all of that's nice, but I think it's religious gobbledygook. I don't see myself as that bad a sinner. I haven't rebelled against God. I don't think I need reconciliation. I think I can do it on my own. Then if you're thinking like that, then I simply need to say to you, be warned. If you reject Christ and his offer, you're rejecting the only way to be made righteous with God. There is no other way. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you are a Christian, but you've been struggling. You've been off track, you've been distracted or, or whatever. 
Well, I want to remind you today that you've been accepted in Jesus, free from sin's penalty. You are, in fact, free from sin's power. You are not yet delivered from sin's pleasure. And not until heaven will you be delivered from sin's presence. But you are delivered of sin's penalty. You are delivered from sin's power. We only sin now because we chew. We are the prodigal returnees. The father wants to reclothe us, put a gold ring on our finger, put sandals on our feet, kill the fatted calf, celebrate with us. If you're struggling, then remind yourself of these amazing truths. Jesus did it all in order for you to live and to walk closely with him. He did it to restore the relationship, to be reconciled. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we, in him, might become the righteousness of God, walking closely with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the plan of reconciliation, the plan of salvation, where all of our sin is laid on him and that we are set free, not only reconciled, but now being made righteous in you. Lord, search and examine our hearts. Help us to be sure that each of us have been reconciled to you. Give us the opportunities, Lord, to share with others that reconciliation is available. It's possible. God has made a way. Speak, Holy Spirit, to the hearts that don't know Jesus as Saviour, who are yet to be reconciled to him. Help them to hear and to respond to the truth. Come to me and I will never turn you aside. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sin and for letting us bear your righteousness. We ask that all that we know, that all sinners might come today and in faith embrace the righteousness that you have provided because you bore our sin. We thank you. And we ask and pray these things in your name. Amen.